Thanks, Sarah. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, as Sarah said, my name is Johnny. Um, I've been part of the Coastline family for about just over a year now. I've come from Suffolk, uh, and I now work for Moreland's Bible College, uh, which if you don't know, we equip people who are passionate about Jesus to make an impact in the church and world. And if that interests you, uh, if that presses a button in the back of your head, come and speak to me afterwards. We'd love to have that conversation uh, with you. Um, we're kind of in this kind of like one-off week. We're kind of in between series at the moment. And so if this is your first week with us, you have chosen a brilliant week to come, because if today isn't very good, you can give us a second chance next week, uh, and we're going to be starting a brand new series uh, with a new teacher, and it's going to be brilliant. Um, and so today we've titled this City of Dreams, and I'm going to get into that in just a little bit, but I want to start with a question um, as I stand on the plants again. Sorry, Sarah, these are Sarah's plants. Um, a question that's going to uh, lead us into a little bit of the theme uh, that we're going to be talking about today, but also lead us into what I think is a principle that many of us uh, perhaps inadvertently live with. And the question is this, who out of this coastline vineyard church is a gardener? So if you're a green-fingered person, if you like sort of uh, lawns and plants or vegetables or whatever it might look like, if you're a gardener, give a sort of a fist in the air and shout whoop. Cool. Less than this morning, less than our 9.30 service. So all of our 9.30 gardeners go home and then go back for lunch and so they can get on with the garden. Uh, Those of you who are like me and hate gardening... Yeah, wow. There's a real split between the 9.30 and the 11.30 over the gardeners. Who knew? Who knew? I am like you. I am not a gardener. I am a patio person. Love a good patio. Easier to maintain. I used to have a garden. Didn't go very well. I thought for a while I could be a houseplant person. I thought I could do that. Turns out I can't. Um, I asked Sarah to bring some of her houseplants here today to sort of show this. Um, She just said, Johnny, you just stepped on Isaac. So she names her plants. That's how much she cares about her plants. Um, I do not. This is one of Sarah's lovely, lovely trees. Do you know what type this is? It's in the ficus family. In the ficus family. Who knew? Um, this is Sarah's, and you can see it's got like lovely long green leaves, green to the end. It's very beautiful. Um, this is one that I bought about six months ago to replace another one that had died, um, and this one's kind of heading in the same direction. Uh, you can see it's in a tiny pot in comparison. If you got up close, you'd be able to see they're all kind of dying at the end. In fact, actually, some of this is falling off. Uh, and this is a plate that I probably stole from my last housemate, uh, and it's never changed tubs. This is how much I care about this houseplant. I think I've watered it about three or four times in its existence, Partly because I kind of have this principle around gardening and plants, a little bit inadvertently. This is what I do. I think, I'm going to get this to look how I want it to look, and then I'm going to ignore it in the hope that I have to do nothing else with it and hope that it maintains its current state. Little bit ridiculous, but it's the kind of principle that I work with with gardening. It's the same with my car. If any of you have seen my car, uh, you'll know that it's constantly dirty, constantly messy. It has golf clubs in the back. It has meal deal wrappers in the footwell. Uh, And if you were to look at it, you think, oh man, this is kind of a health hazard. Uh, But even though uh, that is the case for like 99% of my car's existence, once a year I will still, and I don't know why, get it cleaned. And I'll get it cleaned and I'll sit and think, oh, a clean car's brilliant. This is fantastic. But what I'll do is I'll leave it in the hope that nothing ever has to happen to it again. And inevitably, within a month, same thing again. Stuff in the footwell, golf clubs in the back, jumpers everywhere, and you kind of get this weird kind of used car smell. It's because I live with this idea. I'm going to do something, I'm going to get it to look in the way in which I want it to look, and then I'm going to leave it in the hope and the prayer that I have to do nothing else with it forever because it's going to stay in its current state. And if you're thinking that's ridiculous, you're right. (laughs) We've got other people. We've got an amen. That said, I reckon that for many of us, when it comes to faith, we probably live with a similar principle to how I garden. 
we kind of get it into a place that we're kind of happy with. We get it to look in a certain way. We kind of get our ducks in a row. And then we kind of leave it in the hope that there's nothing else that we need to do with it. Maybe you're here today and you're, uh, you've come for the first time, or maybe you're watching online, and welcome if you're watching online, if you're in the Bournemouth area, come and see us, we miss you. Um, but maybe you're here and you kind of haven't got a faith and you're exploring and you're curious, but even for you, there's a spiritual element to your life that you look at. The kind of stuff where you look at God and you look at morality and you look at the things that are kind of like worthwhile to look at, but you're not really sure where it goes. When it comes to that area, you try and make it look in the way in which you want it to look, and you kind of just hope that that's all you will ever need when it comes to the issues that you face within your life. It's like Jesus came, Jesus died, there's this resurrection that takes place, and then we pray a prayer, or we maybe come down to the front of church after a particular talk, or we make this declaration, and that's kind of it. It's like we celebrate Christmas, we celebrate Easter, we pray a prayer, and then it's this waiting game until death where hopefully there's heaven on the other side. And maybe we live with this, well, what happens next? Listen, the story of Jesus, his birth and his death and his resurrection are the center point to the Christian faith. We can't live without it. It is the most extraordinary, abundant, wonderful news. It is a story in which I try and live my whole life around because without it, I am nothing. And if you speak to others around Coastline, they will probably say the same thing. There is a moment within this where Jesus says, it is finished. And it is a finish, a different end to the story in which we're then welcomed into or offered as a result. But here's the thing. The death and the resurrection of Jesus was never supposed to be the end of the story. And we know this because there's another part of the New Testament. There's a bit afterwards. And yet for many of us, that kind of is where the story ends. If I ask you, for example, hey, what's your story of faith? And for those of you who perhaps relate to kind of what I've said already, might say, well, my life was looking like this, and and there were good bits, and there were bad bits, uh, and then I kind of came to church, or I met someone, and, and they introduced me to this, and then I prayed a prayer, and now I am where I am. And I don't know what's next. We celebrate Christmas, we celebrate Easter, we pray a prayer, but what difference does that have to me now? If that's you, I think chances are, and perhaps all of us to some degree, buy into what I call a fairy tale theology. A fairy tale theology. And it kind of goes, they all lived happily ever after. This happened, I prayed a prayer, and I live happily ever after in the hope that one day I might die and there might be more happily ever after after her that. You see, there's a couple of problems with fairy tale theology. There's a couple of problems with happily ever after. The first problem with happily ever after is that it's kind of a a story uh, narrative technique that's kind of supposed to end stories quickly. Do you know what I mean? It's kind of like happily ever after, the end. The prince and princess ride off into the sunset. They lived happily ever after. Those of you who are married will know the issue with happily ever after. Because you had a sunset moment. There was a moment where you rode off into the distance and the sun set. And then the sun rose again. And you looked at your spouse. And you thought, I long for the days of happily ever after. It's the same with faith. We pray a prayer, we think happily ever after. But in reality, when the complexities of life start to come, we end up in this game of trying to paper over cracks. And we realize, maybe there's something more that's supposed to happen here. Hey, here's another problem with uh, fairy tale faith, happily ever after faith, and it's this. 
Happily ever after faith is boring. Can we get it on the screen? Is that coming? Yeah, here we go. Uh, oh, we missed one. Happily ever, uh, happily ever after fairy tale faith is boring. It's boring. Do you know what I mean? It's, it's, it's kind of like, is this all there is? Some of us, it's like, okay, I'm just going to go to church. I'm going to pray uh, a prayer every now and again. I'm going to read as much Bible as I can so I don't feel guilty when I go to church. I tick the box, I tick the box, I tick the box. And that's kind of it. If I were to ask some of you, what is the most exciting, life-giving, life-churning thing in your life at the moment? What is it that brings a smile on your face and a fire in your heart or a fire underneath your bum where you might like, stand up and jump a little bit? For many of us, faith wouldn't even be part of that equation. In fact, the idea of faith being part of that equation is quite scary because the things that would be involved in order to get that to be part of the equation sound even more boring. We kind of see faith and we kind of uh, relate it to our idea of heaven where there's this blue sky and, and lovely clouds and we all sit there happily in white togas and we listen to worship music all the time. It's like one eternal church service. Now, hear me out. Band, you are amazing, wherever you are. I don't know where you are. Band, you are, yeah, let's give them a round of applause. When you play music, you somehow manage to captivate me and bring me closer to Jesus in a way that perhaps I wouldn't without you. Uh, Sarah and Lauren and Ant and John, if you're watching, you guys are phenomenal leaders. When you speak, I'm so engaged, and you bring me closer to Jesus, and I'm so grateful. We are so grateful for you. Uh, welcome team and hospitality team. Yeah, absolutely. Welcome and hospitality team. You are brilliant. You make an environment so that I can invite people into this community knowing that they're going to feel warm as they enter the room. And I hope this isn't too controversial. But if heaven was just one church service forever and ever and ever, despite all of this being brilliant, I think that maybe after like a thousand years or 50, I'd get a little bit bored. I imagine we'd all be singing and people would be checking their watches, being like, can Johnny release a new song already? You know what I mean? It's kind of like happily ever after is boring. There's got to be more than that. There's got to be another part of the story. Um, in the church that I used to be uh, part of and used to be part of leading, um, I had a conversation with my friend who came up to me after the service. And he said, Johnny, like, I love God. And I've kind of made a commitment to be a Christian now, but do I have to do all the other stuff? Like, do I have to go to church? And do I have to pray? Do I have to read the Bible? And do I have to do this? Do I have to do that? And t- let me tell you, as someone who led the church, that was such an encouraging conversation for me. But he was like, is that it? And I just said, listen, thank you for being so honest. Because I kind of think that a lot of people are kind of in that space, but they don't name it. Uh, where they live a life where I've prayed a prayer, what next? What do I do? And do I have to do all of the other stuff around it, or is belief enough? Maybe you're here today, and this is your first time in church, or the first time back in church for a long time. And maybe you're a little bit skeptical around faith, because you look at the Christians that you know in your life, and you look at their lives, and you think, well, my life isn't all that different. And maybe, okay, cool, they have a cool community, and they meet on Sundays, and and they do a few things, but, but actually, my life isn't all that different. Do I need what they have? And let me tell you, if that's your experience of what you've seen of Jesus' followers, you're probably right to be a little bit skeptical. You're probably right to be a little bit skeptical, because that was never supposed to be the story. The story that we are invited into is not just one of belief. It's not just one of, I prayed a prayer once, so I'm safe kind of faith. It's a story of purpose. It is a story where you are invited into, where there is a continuing end to the story. If happily ever after faith was true, the New Testament would be a lot shorter 
And life would be a heck of a lot easier. If it really were happily ever after, life would be easier. And the rest of the New Testament would probably be a lot shorter. The good news is, it's the, the story that we are offered instead in this library that we call the Bible offers a far more compelling story that invites you to be part of it. And I think it can be told in the form of four different gardens. Uh, right in the beginning is the garden that probably we all know, the garden that's perhaps the most popular garden in the Bible, in the Garden of Eden. And God creates this Garden of Eden, Eden meaning paradise, and he, he puts man and woman there, and it's all good for a while, and then, and then they turn away from God, and sin enters the game. And sin doesn't stay still, it infects itself into every part of the world, and it grows itself into kingdom, and brings every kind of darkness and evil that you and I probably cringe at, and causes us to want to look away. It's the stuff that we see on the news. It's the stuff that we desperately want to escape from. But that garden wasn't the end of the story. We're giving another garden, this time in the New Testament, where Jesus is there and is pleading out to his Father in heaven in a garden called Gethsemane. And he's saying, Father, not my will, but yours. And he goes to the cross and he takes on the sin of the world and dies. But that's not the end of the story. We're offered another garden, this time a garden tomb, not that far onwards, which Jesus walks out of, offering a new hope of new life, a personal presence of God that we call the Holy Spirit, which can inhabit us and animate us and bring us out into a new way of living. But that wasn't the end of the story either. You see, there's a fourth garden that we're told of in this library that we call the Bible. In fact, right in the last chapter of the Bible, in a, a book called Revelation. Now, many of you have heard of perhaps the book of Revelation. Maybe uh, you've read it or attempted to read it. And it's full of kind of symbolism and, and pictures and ideas. And it can kind of be a really difficult one to process and try and work your way around. Uh, it's probably the hardest book in the Bible to interpret. And as a result, it's one that's probably uh, the most uh, sort of misinterpreted and, and difficult to try and communicate as well. But in short, this was a book that was written to a number of different churches by one of Jesus' followers called John. And the idea is that it was supposed to expose the patterns of their past to reveal some promises for their future. That's Revelation in a nutshell. Letters to the church to say, these are the patterns of your past, and they're going to reveal some promises about your future. And so as John starts writing this letter... He writes, oh, sorry, as John finishes writing this letter in the very last chapter of the Bible, we read this. Then the angels showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Down the middle of the great street of the city, on each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the trees are for healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and the Lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. There will no longer be night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun. For the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. Now, that sounds amazing. And for some of you, you'll hear that and think, that's amazing. For others, you'll read that and think, that's a little bit confusing. Like, what's going on there? But for those reading this passage, it would have revealed to them some of the patterns of their past. In fact, it will refer them to a garden that we all know pretty well, the Garden of Eden. 
It will point back to the first garden that they knew. And that should make us curious. Because if John is communicating to these people, listen, this isn't a happily ever after fairy tale theology. This is a real compelling story that you're invited into. Why is he referring back to a garden that is the most fairy tale, idealistic garden that we've ever known? I mean, if ever there was a fairy tale garden in the Bible, it would probably be Eden. And yet John refers back and says, hey, listen, look back for a second. Look back. I mean, think, for, uh, think about it for a moment. Imagine you're Adam or imagine you're Eve uh, and you're kind of sort of standing in the garden and, you know, and, and God comes up to you and he gives you a commandment. He says, hey, listen, I want you to name all of the animals. And you think, great, cool, let's go. Let's name all the animals. And all the animals are kind of like in a nice little neat line like they would be for Noah's Ark later on in the story. And they all start coming up to you and you're like, cool, this is going to be fun. Venezuelan fruit bat, off you go. Like giraffe, off you go mongoose. That's a good one. You can go. And then you kind of get bored after a while and you're like, bat, rat, pig, dog. And eventually you start to get a little bit bored. I mean, there's kind of this dense jungle and you kind of sit there for a while. I mean, it sounds a little bit boring. Not many of us would trade our life of luxury now for a dense jungle that we find in Eden. But if that's your story of Eden, or if that's your depiction of what it was like, I'd hazard to say that you've probably got it a little bit wrong. You see, in Genesis 1, chapter, uh, chapter 1, verse 26, we find the creation of man, and God's kind of discussing it with himself, and he says, then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule. Let us make them in our image. When it comes to going and bringing rejuvenation and restoration into those around us, Part of that is recognizing that within them, God has planted something of himself. And part of our role is to reveal that there is a loving creator father who has given something of himself within them. There is something of the divine within the people that we speak to, within the people that we're called to love. And then he says, so that they may rule. What does that mean? Or to reign over, to take authority over, to take authority over in the way in which God did for the first six days of creation. In the first six days of creation, he showed himself to be an artist. He showed himself to be a designer. He showed himself to be a creatist and an ecologist and a zoologist and a horticulturist and a mathematician and an engineer and a musician and a scientist and a poet and a shepherd and a king. And he says, I'm going to make these people and they are going to have something within me, uh, something of me within them. And part of their role is to go and to rule over in that way, to take the elements of earth and make it into something else. Creation was never supposed to be stagnant. It was never supposed to be made and there you go, finished, job done. It was supposed to move. There was supposed to be something of it. There was supposed to be something about it that we could go and inhabit and rule and to reign over. And yet for many of us, we take that story of Eden and we twist it in a couple of ways. Here's a couple of ways I think that we twist it. The first one is this. I think we separate life into the boring and the life-giving. It's like we have 99% of our life that we have, to, we have to do. And if we do it well enough, we might get 1% of light relief. It's kind of there's jobs and there's tasks and I have to go to work and I have to earn money. I have to do that. And then there might be 1% where something good happens. And actually, I just don't think that's the story of Eden. I think God says, no, listen, I want all of you to give all of yourself to me. Listen, if you're a Bournemouth University student, you are called to rule and to reign over the research so that you can bring something into the world. If you're an engineer, you're called to rule and to reign over the mechanics at your disposal to make the world a faster-moving, better place. 
If you're a plumber, you're called to rule and to reign over the pipes that have probably saved more lives than many medicines have. If you're a farmer, you're supposed to rule and reign over the animals and the crops of your field. If you're a stay-at-home parent, you're called to reign, rule and reign over your family so that you can raise a generation in care so that the next generation might be better than the one that we currently know. And if you're a barista, there is a special calling on your life. <laughs> you do more for this world than you know. There's a reason that why many of us will watch Planet Earth 3 on the BBC tonight and we will have faces that look like this. There is something of the world that awakes us within, that provokes discovery, that wants to go out and find undiscovered oceans and seas and lands and space and planets. It's because God says, hey, listen, I want you to rule and reign. This was never supposed to be finished. It was supposed to be progressive. I'm calling you into a mission. Your life is not a means to an end, but a means to a mission. Hey, here's another way that I think we twist the story of Eden. I think it's like this. We separate the secular and the spiritual. Uh, when I was 16 years old, I heard a talk online um, from one of my favorite speakers, uh, and I heard it and just thought, cool, I want to do what he does. I wanted, there was something that was awoken within me. And so I started going around church and going around school being like, hey, when I'm older, I want to be a priest. And it turns out I did want to be a priest, but that was kind of all the language that I had for it. And there were people after church who really were full of good intention and full of good encouragement, came up to me and said, Johnny, we heard that you want to be a priest. We just want to let you know that we think that you have a special calling on your life. Let me tell you, if there is one way that you want to enhance an ego of an already arrogant 16-year-old, say more stuff like that. <laughs> but even as I said that, there's something within you that kind of thinks, ooh. In fact, I hope there is. Because actually, we were never supposed to separate the secular and the spiritual. If you speak to Sarah and Lauren and Anne and John and others, they will be the first to tell you that actually their role in the church should be no more powerful than the ones that we are all called to. It's not supposed to be that these guys are the main event, these guys do the main work, and we're kind of their backups. Like, that's not supposed to be the case at all. We are all called for the secular and the spiritual as one, combined. If you look at the Old Testament, you'll find that there isn't even a word for spiritual as such. There was kind of just this given that everything was spiritual in everything that they did. In the New Testament, there is a word for spiritual, and it almost always refers to an animation of the Holy Spirit. Again, in everything that we do, we're all called into this land of secular and spiritual as one. We're supposed to pull it back together. If you read the book of Leviticus, which is a thrilling read, Leviticus effectively tells the story of God speaking to a nation, saying, listen, I'm calling you to be a kingdom of priests. Okay, if you're looking after the temple, brilliant, you're a priest. But if you're a farmer, great, also, you're a priest. Your calling is to bring something of heaven to earth. If you're an IT technician, brilliant, great, you're also a priest. If you're a teacher, excellent, awesome, you're also a priest. If you're a rock climber and an adventurer, great, you're also a priest. We're all supposed to be a kingdom of priests. I have a friend, Val, uh, who um, devastatingly two weeks ago lost her second partner in five years. Um, just sort of a devastating story, happened incredibly suddenly and without really much warning at all. And she found herself in the hospital in London um, where her partner, Pete, had just um, passed away. And one of the doctors came out and said, we have a priest uh, on hand uh, who could pray for you if you'd like. 
Uh, and this is definitely no disrespect to our Catholic uh, brothers and sisters, and, uh, and this is certainly uh, not to uh, put anything down on the amazing ministry that, of chaplaincy that they have in hospitals. But Val being Val just said, well, in my church, we can, pre- uh, we can speak to God. And so she stood there with this family that uh, had kind of had this, all of these complex issues and, and difficulties, and some had kind of been estranged for a little while, and there was a kind of like a whole area of difficulty. And Val became the priest where she started praying for this family that didn't really know Jesus very well and praying for them in the midst of just this utter devastation. And it was a moment where it was like, oh, yeah. We're a kingdom of priests. We all have access to this Father in heaven who we can pray to, and he hears us, and he responds. And it's not just a I prayed a prayer once, so I'm safe kind of faith. It's far more compelling than that. Eden was never supposed to just to be a momentary moment. It was supposed to be an ongoing kingdom that you and I are invited into, where we faithfully imitate and communicate to our Father in heaven as we rule and reign over and make good things happen with the things that he's given us, without malice and without hurt and without pain and without using others, but in a way that builds a kingdom that he invites us into. And so in that light, let's read Revelation again. Let's read that last chapter again in chapter 22. Then the angel showed me the river of water of life as a crystal, uh, as a clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. And this is kind of just this imagery that talks about, uh, that's talked about throughout Revelation. But it's almost saying, hey, there's this kingdom of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control that we are all invited to go. And it's supposed to be moving like a river, a kingdom that flows through down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood a tree of life bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every day. A garden that was never supposed to stay a garden, but a garden that was supposed to become a city of dreams, a city of more bearing fruit each month, and the leaves of the tree are for healing of the nations. No more pain, no more hurt, no more pornography, no more paedophilia, no more rape, no more murder, no more unkindness, no more embezzlement, no more greed, no more cancer, no more anxiety, no more depression, none of it, all gone, forever. And it's not just one day. We are invited and called to bring a kingdom down to earth, to show the world of, hey, this is what it can look like when we follow Jesus, when we buy into this kingdom. When we buy into this kingdom, no longer will there be any curse. No longer will there be roots that grow over the fields where it's now difficult to plow. But there is a kingdom that we're invited, where every day invited into, where every day is better than the day before it, under the most glorious and splendid leadership, and most glorious and splendid and brilliant and lovely king, where there are mountain ranges unfound, uh, and there are uh, forests unexplored and ideas unthought of that you and I are invited to. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. This is a reference to how some of the Hebrews would have written down uh, verses uh, that meant a lot to them within the Bible uh, and they'd have scrolled them up and put them in boxes and tied them to their hands and to their heads as a sign of devotion to their king and a devotion to the text. And we de- when we devote ourselves to Jesus, when we devote ourselves to his word, what happens? There will be no more night. They will not need the light of the lamp or the light of the sun. For the Lord God will give them light, and they will, all together, reign. They will all reign forever and ever and ever. 
This is not a fairy tale faith. This is not, I, I prayed a prayer once, I'm kind of safe, I'm going to patch up the stuff that doesn't seem so good and patch up the stuff so that people think everything's okay and live my life as much as I can so I can get the 1% of relief. This is a mission that we are called to. Your life is more than a means to an end, but a means to a mission. A kingdom that you're invited to come and be part of. This is something far more. Hey, the fact that you're here or the fact that you're watching online, you are part of a vision of a church. Did you know that? A vision that chances are you've heard before if you've been around here for long enough, and it's to to do this, to love the king and to live the kingdom. And if you haven't been to Coastline before, or perhaps you have and you've been afraid to ask, you might think, that sounds lovely, but what does it mean? Well, to love the king, to follow in step with our Lord and Savior Jesus, who, who gave everything for us, who said there is a new way of living, a new kingdom to chase after to devote ourselves to him at the expense of ourselves, to have him at the center of a story that we were never good to hold at the center for ourselves. And to live the kingdom, well, it's all that we've been talking about. To bring restoration to those in need. To live our lives, to build businesses and charities, and to care for families, and to care for orphans and widows. To look out for our neighborhoods and communities to give in ways that show extravagant generosity, to live a different kind of kingdom, not just to hold it all together. Let me ask you a question. What are the ways in which I can be responsible for bringing a little bit of heaven to earth? Where can I be responsible for bringing a little bit of heaven to earth? For some of us, it might be that there's been part of our soul that we've kind of dulled down and pushed down and maybe awoken every now and again when we hit the 1% of relief. There have been areas of our life that we've dismissed because it's not spiritual enough, or, or it's kind of a luxury to own. And I think that God wants to kind of awaken that a little bit, and call you back to say, hey, listen, I didn't call you to give you a B game. I called you into a kingdom where you devote all of yourself. And for some of us, we need to awaken. We need to awaken that soul a little bit more. Can I invite you to stand? Uh, Anne's going to lead us in ministry in just a moment. But if that's you, I just want to read a quote from someone called Palmer Parker. It's a quote that I first read in a book called Garden City by uh, John Marcoma, a book that I read a few years ago and would really highly recommend. But the quote from Parker Palmer says this, The soul is like a wild animal, tough, resilient, savvy, self-sufficient, and yet exceedingly shy. If we want to see a wild animal... The last thing that we should do is to go crashing through the woods, shouting for the creature to come out. But if we're willing to walk quietly into the woods, sit silently for an hour or two at the base of a tree, the creature we're waiting for may well emerge. And out of the corner of our eye, we'll catch a glimpse of the precious wilderness we seek. We were called for more. And I prayed a prayer, I'm safe, kind of faith, where we simply wait for the grave in hope. The center point of our faith is the cross. The center point of our faith is Jesus. And he invites us to live a different kind of kingdom.